two days until we go in to record the next album. Two days? Three days. Not including. Well, three days including today. Right. No, we're going on Monday. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, we'll be talking about Silverchair's fourth album, Diorama. Now, as you might have noticed by the title of this episode, Diorama was way too big to condense into one episode. So yes, Diorama will be a two-parter. In this episode, we'll talk about the lead-up and background to Diorama, all the way through the first six tracks of the album. Then, next time, we'll pick back up with the final five tracks and talk about the reception and aftermath of its release. Before we get started on the episode proper, I just want to say again, thank you to everyone who has been listening and been in touch about how much you've been enjoying the show. So if you are enjoying the podcast, maybe your friends would also enjoy the podcast. That's honestly the best way to spread the word about the show. Good old fashioned word of mouth in real life and online. So tell people about the show, share my content. If a friend of yours asks what podcast they should listen to, maybe tell them this one. And of course, you can always rank the show five stars and give it a review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps people find the show as well. I'm on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash silverchairpodcast. You can also email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. Enough. I think I went a little overboard with this episode. So let's get into it. Let's talk diorama. When we last caught up with Silverchair, they were in the midst of their Neon Ballroom tour, and Daniel was still recovering from anorexia and possible pharmaceutical dependency. Quite a bit happened between 1999 and 2002, so let's try and run through them as quickly as we can. The final shows of the Neon Ballroom tour were the 1999 Homebake Festival shows in December, where they played both the Sydney and Gold Coast legs. For most of the year 2000, Silverchair as a band were meant to take a break. But instead of taking a break, Daniel Johns teamed up with Paul Mack, now a good friend after his collaborations on Neon Ballroom, for the EP I Can't Believe It's Not Rock. Now, I do plan to cover their later collaboration, The Dissociatives, uh, in its own episode, so I will at least touch on I Can't Believe It's Not Rock to some extent. So I won't say much about it here. You didn't 
really go out very much at that point as well. And I was like, you know, well, fuck it, dude, I'm coming to get you. So, like, I, you know, drove to Newcastle and, you know, got him and took him to my place and, and you know, cooked and we ate and it was all in the middle of that period. You know, and music is the fucking healer. It is, you know, it's got me out of many a dark time and I, it's nice to be able to share that with somebody else. That was Paul Mack talking about this period of time. And you can hear when you listen more to Paul talking about his collaborations with Daniel, how much more excited he seems about the music than the more reserved Ben or Chris. I can imagine having someone more open emotionally and affectionate must have been really rewarding for Daniel after showing your bandmates songs that they said they liked but didn't necessarily get the same enthusiasm from, at least initially. I Can't Believe It's Not Rock was the first release on a new label called Eleven. All right, we need to talk about business stuff for a sec. All right, I'll try and make this really quick. During the year 2000, there was some behind-the-scenes shuffling as Silverchair left their longtime label Murmur, Sony, after fulfilling their three-album contract, Frog Stomp, Freak Show, and Neon Ballroom. It was bittersweet leaving Murmur because, you know, old mate John O'Donnell had helped discover the band. Initially, manager John Watson wanted Silverchair to sign directly to Sony in the US because, long story short, being signed directly to Sony in the US meant they wouldn't have to pay Matrix royalties back to Sony Australia. But Sony US said no because they didn't want to have to give any of their other international artists the same deal. So Silverchair ended up signing with Atlantic Records for North America and Watson set up his own record label, Eleven, for Silverchair releases in Australia um, to be distributed by EMI, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff only matters because Atlantic is going to play quite a large role in the story of Diorama. Also, Sony Australia didn't like losing one of their biggest local successes, so they released a best-of compilation to basically annoy the band and Watson. If anyone has that Silverchair Best of Volume 1, that's what that is. The band did not want that to come out. Other things that happened during this time... Daniel started seeing a therapist again and started to wean himself off antidepressants. Chris moved to Sydney with girlfriend Sarah McLeod, the front woman of the Super Jesus. And Ben, for some unknown reason, got a job as a shelf stacker at a record store in Newcastle. Anyway, one year since Silverchair had last performed together, they played the New Year's Eve slot at the 2000 Falls Festival in the coastal town of Lawn, Victoria. Three weeks after that, they played the massive Rock in Rio 3 in Brazil, which they'd been invited to fairly last minute. It turned out that the fandom in South America had only grown since the Frog Stomp bootleg days, and they played a blistering set to a crowd of supposedly 250,000 people. This is the gig I mentioned in the Frog Stomp episode as the last time they played Pure Massacre. At these two gigs, Falls and Rio, they also debuted two new songs, One Way Mule and Hollywood, which could only mean one thing. Daniel had been writing again. Again, during a supposed year off from the band. Of course Daniel had been writing. He'd been holed up in his house all by himself again. But it was different this time. By weaning himself off antidepressants, he started to experience all these new feelings that he hadn't had for a while. This is where the kernel of diorama starts. I was just taking too many antidepressants. Everything was suppressed. Every single emotion that you could feel was suppressed. There was very little happiness and very little sadness. In 2000 was when I actually came off all the antidepressants. I just didn't know where I was and everything was new to me and I, could, I felt really, really emotional. Hadn't felt for a long time, but it was really harsh. Like I was feeling really happy one moment and just really down the next. Yeah, but then all of a sudden, I really started appreciating the ups, which I hadn't felt for such a long time. I was really 
I was really getting these moments of just magical clarity. And then I just felt totally inspired. Diorama was almost something else entirely. Daniel had started writing songs for Silverchair's fourth album, but eight songs or so in, he realised he hated what he was doing. He thought it was too negative, or it sounded too much like the last album. So he did something that not many songwriters could do. I started writing and thought I had an album's worth of material, and then about eight songs into it, I realised that I hated everything that I'd written. That just sounded too much like the last album. And I thought in order to start fresh and really be happy with it, I've got to know that they're gone. I can't go back to that. The story goes that he had a moment of clarity after walking along Merriweather Beach and he went home and erased the tape of his work. He needed to know he couldn't go back to it. He had to start fresh. I got to the point where I just thought it was all horrible. Just pressed arrays and just sat there watching the two hours and 50 minutes just go down to nothing and just literally watched it disappear because I needed to not have... Needed to not have a backup plan. Interestingly, of those abandoned songs, only One Way Mule survived the cull to make it into the new version of Diorama. It does perhaps show the direction those songs must have been going in. That he was able to write songs such as Across the Night, The Greatest View, and Love Your Life after erasing two hours worth of material is astounding. But Daniel didn't rush to show these new songs to his bandmates. Among those who heard the songs before Ben and Chris were Daniel's brother Heath and Paul Mack, who was astounded that someone technically untrained in music could produce such complex music. Another person was Phil McKellar, who would produce the Tomorrow EP and would go on to produce the diorama demos at Mangrove Studios. When it was finally time for Ben and Chris to hear the new songs, they were similarly stunned at the next level complexity. Of course, diorama sounds complicated, and in parts it is, but Daniel had learnt from his time on Neon Ballroom where, as I mentioned, he sonically tricked you into thinking things were more complex than they were. There was a lot to take in at first. I, di- I didn't really know what to say by the end, because, I mean, it was exciting because it was so just like, wow, this is so, A, not what I expected, and B, you know, it's, we're, gonna make, we're making another record again. By now, Daniel's house had a proper home studio in it, installed with the help of Paul Mack, And this allowed Daniel's demos to be layered and complex in ways that he couldn't have dreamt of when he was demoing tracks for Neon Ballroom on a dictaphone cassette recorder. My belief is that because Daniel was now working with a proper home studio setup, he could play around with vocal arrangements and experiment with layers of harmony and strange vocal ideas. In 1997, Daniel did an interview with Dylan Lewis from Recovery, where they went through his influential albums. And among the Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young was an ABBA album. He jokingly says, I like this because of its haunting melodies. But he wasn't actually joking. Diorama is where those haunting melodies of his childhood really paid off. Are you faking your history here? No. You're choosing the hippest albums. Where's all those Brian Adams albums and Daniel Amam you had here a minute ago? Ah, that's what we need. The best of ABBA is also a big influence because of their haunting melodies. In contrast to Neon Ballroom and the earlier albums, where Daniel was aiming for darkness and exploring the dark hidden side of things, he went into the songs for Diorama with an entirely new credo, positivity, colour and light. I can remember Daniel was like, I don't want to do anger anymore. I'm really over anger. I'm sick of, you know, just shouting about how angry and fucked up, you know, life is and how, you know or your perception is of it. I just want to be positive. Daniel was sick of writing in a depressed frame of mind. 
This time around, he wanted an openness, a broad spectrum of emotion. He wanted to capture a positive energy. I guess with this album, there was a deliberate intention to write something more positive because I didn't want to get stuck in a rut where I could only write dark things and stop to be reliant on depression in order to write good songs. So even when I was feeling down, I was trying to manipulate what I was feeling by writing uplifting tunes. In April 2001, Silverchair recorded demos for the new album at Mangrove Studios with Phil McKellar. But who would they get to produce the full version of this new positive album? John Watson apparently wanted to try a new producer. After two albums in a row with the band, Nick Launay was supposedly too familiar. But Nick still listened to the demos and suggested Jim Magini from Midnight Oil and Queen's Brian May. Apparently Pink Floyd's producer Bob Ezrin and Metallica's producer Bob Rock were also on the shortlist. Whether those were suggestions from the band or their new record label Atlantic is unclear. At one point, everyone had settled on Michael Beanhorn, who, among other things, had produced Soundgarden's Super Unknown and had recently won a Grammy for his work on Holes, Celebrity Skin and Marilyn Manson's Mechanical Animals. But he was running overtime on producing Korn's Untouchables album and everybody had to go back to the shortlist. Enter David Bottrell, a Canadian producer who had worked with everyone from Peter Gabriel to Dream Theatre. Daniel later said that when he learnt that Bottrell had produced a King Crimson album, that he just wanted to learn from someone who had worked with Robert Fripp. Daniel also said that when he met with other producers, they often didn't take him seriously, and that they treated him like some stoner kid with all these weird ideas. With Bottrell, Daniel found a producer open to making an ambitious album, and also someone who would be in his corner. Importantly, Bottrell had worked with Peter Gabriel, yes, so he could do eccentricity and expansive sounds, but he had also produced the two most recent Tool albums, so he could also do heavy. Bottrell was cool, I really liked him. I think he was on our side, you know, not the record companies, and, you know, a lot of the time, a lot of the, time the producer plays that kind of middleman, and, and um, he was great. He, was, he, you know, really went in to, to fight for us and was saying, you know, this is, you know, the reason this song has to be like this is because it's, you know, this is doing this, or whatever reason he was using. But yeah, he was fantastic. He was, I think he was the perfect producer for that record. Bottrell as a producer seems to have struck the right balance between letting Daniel do his thing, but also being available for constructive criticism. As he told Mix Online magazine, quote, we nipped and tucked here and there and did a lot of pre-production work on tightening things up and rearranging melodic structure in a couple of places, end quote. Because they were at a new record label, manager John Watson had gotten a very good deal for Silverchair, and so Diorama had the biggest budget for recording that they'd ever had. This allowed Daniel the time and resources he really needed to get what was in his head out onto the tracks. However, because of the amount of money invested in Atlantic's new signing, the label started to become increasingly uncomfortable with the direction the album was going. And of course, later on, it meant that despite the relative lack of success of the album, especially internationally, it still ended up being one of the band's biggest earners because of that initial deal. For the first three albums, Silverchair had made pretty much the records they wanted to make. You know, John and myself had been the A&R people. John had been the A&R guy at Sony after I'd left, obviously. And, you know, we'd always had a very open and fairly frictionless um, relationship. They had never really kind of got pressured Diorama was different. You know, there was new A&R people that didn't have the same long-standing involvement. And, you know, yes, there was pressure. That was Silverchair manager John Watson. 
Early in the process, Kevin Williamson, A&R from Atlantic, expressed concerns about the commercial viability of the songs. If you've seen the creation of Diorama documentary, you'll recognize him as the brash, jockish American who is constantly second-guessing Daniel's songwriting. Well, let's assume that radio will play the breakdown section, which is fucking radical. But let's also assume that they won't play that section. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm talking radio. Uh Uh I just keep thinking that, you know, the the, uh, verse is needed in this section here. Then doing the duty, or, or, or figuring out the bringing the bridge in later, you know. And again, I think the problem with writing melodic songs, if you're going to write melodic songs, if you don't follow a, if you don't follow your melody, then you're really throwing the listener off. Also, I don't know where to put this, but I just want to note that according to Kevin Williamson's LinkedIn profile, he left Atlantic in April 2002, basically the month that Diorama came out in Australia. The record company weren't saying we don't hear a single. They were saying we don't hear a single that sounds like enough like your last record. I don't know, why do you sign a band and then change everything about what they're doing? It's like, what, if you don't have any faith in the artist, don't sign them. You know, I'm not, I wasn't going into Diorama because I wanted to commit commercial suicide. But you can see it from Atlantic's position too. And this might be the last time I concede this point because, well, no, they signed a band that had made Neon Ballroom, which was full of experimentation, but also full of rock hits. From Atlantic's position, they weren't hearing those same rock hits on Diorama. I think a lot of people underestimate the intelligence of the general public. I kind of, in a lot of ways, it offends me when people say that Silverchair fans aren't going to get what I'm trying to do. I'm aware that it's a risk what I'm doing, but I didn't go out of my way to be different. It just came out and I didn't, didn't alter it to please anyone. Silverchair started recording Diorama in July 2001, once again at Studio 301 Sydney, where Neon Borum had been recorded. This time around, Daniel wanted to mostly record in the daytime to not only bring a positive atmosphere to the sessions, but also contrast it to the nighttime vibe of Neon Ballroom, whose sessions had mostly been done at night. Daniel apparently tried to keep an uplifting vibe in the studio at all times. He even said in an interview with Mix Online that, quote, when you're recording something, the atmosphere in the room is also captured on the tape. If the intention of the record for me was to make a record that was uplifting and motivating, then it needed to be a motivational, uplifting atmosphere in the room, end quote. Daniel wanted to capture a positive energy with Diorama, and he said that he and the band hadn't felt as enthusiastic about music since they were 15. For someone only 22 when he said that, it sounds almost like a humble brag, but you have to remember how much had happened in the seven years preceding this album. In fact, in anyone's life, the years between your mid-teens and your early 20s seem expanded compared to any other five or seven year period later in life. It takes up so much emotional and mental real estate those years. Quickly for the techies, at 301, they recorded analog to a couple of Studer A824 tracks, that's a tape machine, into a Neve 88R console, which is a mixing desk. Then, of course, everything was transferred to Pro Tools. I should just point out that just because something was put into Pro Tools doesn't mean that there was a lot of editing on it necessarily, at least not in the sense that some people might think. In fact, the album liner notes actually specifically point out that the album uses no pitch correction software. Quote, Silverchair chooses not to use this computer software on their albums as it is their personal belief that such artificial perfection diminishes music. 
I don't think Diorama sounds much like Neon Ballroom or Freak Show, but Bottrell did want a big roomy drum sound, just like Nick Lornay did. He accomplished this with some capsule room mics to supplement the standard kit miking for Ben's drums. In September 2001, overdubs and vocals were done back at Mangrove Studios on the New South Wales Central Coast, just like on Neon Ballroom. At the time, it didn't sound like much had been done to Daniel's vocals, but listening now, there does seem to be quite a bit of chorus effect, or maybe that's just compression, which is particularly noticeable when Daniel's voice is double-tracked. I have to think that if this album was produced today, that might be pared back a bit. That said, for an album that is so packed full of layers, you know, the whole rainbow of music and emotion, you really need that prominent vocal to tie it all together. Daniel was writing melodies that were complex and memorable, but the production really had to focus to make sure there was that melodic through line, and at the time, making his voice prominent meant chorusing and compression. And of course, they wouldn't make an album like Diorama today. They just don't. In October 2001, they went back to Studio 301 to record the orchestrations, both Van Dyke Parks and Larry Mulbricks. Don't worry, we're getting to them. Strings, woodwinds, brass, harp, and percussion. So after nine weeks recording in Australia, the crew decamped to LA for mixing at Larrabee North Studio, same place as they mixed Neon Ballroom, on its SSL 9000 desk. Side note, it's interesting to note how different Neon Ballroom sounds compared to Diorama when all of its hardware, if you will, was the same. A different producer, different set of songs, and a different mindset probably helped though. It was during the mixing that the tension with Atlantic finally boiled over. Kevin from Atlantic insisted Daniel try to write a hit. The result was the song Ramble, and to record it, everyone had to go back to Sydney, set the studio back up, just to satisfy the label. In the end, it didn't even make the album. It's a B-side on the Without You single. John Watson again. Yes, there was a lot of concern on the part of the US A&R people that this was not a record that was going to fit for American radio. Their concern was well-founded. It didn't. The president of Atlantic said, I don't, I don't hear a lead single here. And I said, well, we have a really big problem then because we're not, you know, Daniel's not going to write any more songs, the band's not going to record any more songs, we're off, we're running. A quick note about B-sides. The main reason I want to do a B-sides episode of this podcast is to talk about the B-sides from the Diorama Sessions, which includes possibly my favourite Silverchair song, Asylum. For what it's worth, I really like the song Ramble, but for Daniel, the song represented being pushed into a corner and being told to write on command, so apparently he's just always hated that song. Pity. I feel like there's just no way to to make the music that I wanted to make anymore. Like it, it was, It's not like in the 60s or the 70s where pop music was pretty limitless, you know, like that. And to me, that's that's always the era of music that I've been inspired by, like <laughs> psychedelic pop and, you know, big melodies and big riffs and it's all, it's all fantasy and escapism and, and it just felt like there's no room for that anymore. Everyone just wanted... Grunge. It was also during the mixing stage that Daniel's knee started swelling up, the first symptom of what would later be diagnosed as reactive arthritis, but we'll get to that as well. Supposedly, the album was originally going to be titled The Time Machine. Jeff Apter claims in his A New Tomorrow biography that the change was a last-minute decision after Guy Pearce, who was in the Across the Night video, had a film out at the same time called The Time Machine. Apparently the change was only made two weeks before the release of the film. I don't know if I buy that, because chronologically, it makes no sense. The film The Time Machine was released on April 4, 2002, 
Diorama was released March 31, 2002. For this story to be true, that means that all the photography, artwork, and marketing collateral, all of which reference the title as Diorama, would have to have been changed within 10 or so days of the album's release. The album cover, for God's sake, is a door opening onto a rainbow, almost a literal depiction of a diorama. Also, Across the Night was the fourth single. Was the Across the Night video even shot before they released the album? Wouldn't Guy Pearce have said something? You know, like, oh, your new album's called The Time Machine? I have a new movie coming out with that exact title. Not to mention that the video for Without You, the second single, explicitly uses the diorama cover art as a visual theme. So when was that shot? And Daniel's hair in the Across the Night video is short, after the previous videos had showed him with long hair. Plus, Daniel had been going through rehab for his arthritis in the time between the Without You and the Across the Night videos, which is why the Love Your Life video is animated. So presumably, the Across the Night video was filmed way later, possibly even in early 2003, closer to when the single was actually released. In addition, I can't even Google a reference to this story at all. But besides all that, Diorama makes much more sense as a title. It makes sense thematically. During the promotion of the album, Daniel talked a lot about this theme of a world within a world. The Time Machine makes no thematic sense. It's a bad title, and I don't believe the story. I rest my case. With the albums, I'm really trying to branch out and be more than just a traditional rock band and take it somewhere you know, where people can, can listen to it and think, how do you hear? Where the last record, it was like I was submerged and I couldn't get out of something. It was a very contained album. This album, I think, because of the year off and a lot of the stuff that I did in the time off, it really opened my eyes and in turn kind of opened my mind up a lot as well. So musically, I wanted to follow that by just making songs that take you on some kind of journey without scaring you off. It's taking you somewhere where it's pleasant to go, but it's not necessarily... I've seen it claimed that Daniel wrote most of this album on piano, which might be true, but there's still a lot of guitar-heavy songs on Diorama, including the ballads. I would estimate, looking at the sheet music, that about a third of the songs were written on piano, which is more than the, like, none in the rest of their catalogue. My impression of Diorama as an album is that it seems like the songs that were written earlier are the ones in non-standard guitar tunings, Without You and One Way Mule, namely, and the rest are in standard guitar tuning. This could be because many of the new songs were written on piano, and working out how to translate something from piano to guitar is hard enough without bringing open chord tunings into it. So for the most part, goodbye to the open chord tunings of Neon Ballroom, but hello to Daniel's shiny new grand piano compositions. With that said, let's get to the songs themselves. Across the night Was the moon that stole Across the night was written at a point where I wasn't sleeping very well. It was a full moon and I felt like the moon was stealing my sleep because it was too powerful and it was really affecting me. And then I thought, oh, why don't I just write a a song that sounds like a Hollywood musical? (laughs) And I write it about this moon stealing my slumber. And I just sat in my house over a night from about 11 o'clock one night till about 7 in the morning and I just wrote that song. And then I was really tired and I went to bed. There are a lot of firsts on Diorama, and it all starts with the opening track, Across the Night. The first Silverchair opening track, maybe the only one, where the guitar is prominently acoustic. 
the first Silver Chair song also to open with the chorus, which happens again on this album in Love Your Life. Starting with the chorus, or really a refrain, is a very classic style of song structure, going back to Tin Pan Alley or the Great American Songbook. The chorus, or refrain, sets up the lyrical theme of the song, and then the verses reiterate it. Lyrics this time around are even more poetic than on Neon Ballroom, and it happens from the very first line. Across the night, it was the moon that stole my slumber. Across the night, I fell in love with people sleeping. That's the theme. I felt tired, asleep in a golden ocean. Your eyes perspired, a spark in my fascination. That reiterates and develops the lyrical theme. But it's not just verses and the refrain in Across the Night. The structure of this song is pretty off the wall, with more discrete parts than even emotion sickness. There's the bridge or pre-chorus between the verses and refrain that you didn't even know the song needed until you hear it, because it leads perfectly into that refrain that we've already heard at the start. But by now, that second iteration of it is so much stronger. And there's the part towards the end where on first listen you might think the song's about to end, but then it changes gears and goes into the So Let Us Be Married part, which sets up this epic ending. I don't usually talk about the lyrics until later, but the lyrics in this song are almost straightforward. Like I said, it's written in that Tim Pan Alley tradition, though the song structure isn't. The Tim Pan Alley song structure is typically A-A-B-A, and Across the Night has a much more complex structure than that. But anyway, it's a song about insomnia, and the lyrics, though slightly more literary, reflect that basic theme. Even the let us be married and have another baby can be read as, if I'm never going to be able to sleep again, we might as well have a baby, because that will be reason to stay up all night. Contrast this to how Daniel was writing lyrics for Neon Ballroom, where he would put random lines together that he liked to create a collage-like whole. On Diorama, the lyrics were slightly more straightforward, but often expressed in a more strange or poetic way. I should say something about the line, I hugged a man's arthritic shoulder. I believe this line refers to the narrator hugging himself, but of course, as we'll see, Daniel did develop reactive arthritis at the end of the Diorama period. But this song was well in the can by then, so it's a bit eerie, actually. Another thing about the lyrics on Diorama is they don't tend to follow a particular rhyme scheme. Often the lyrics don't rhyme at all. It's the melody and the musical underpinning that make the lyrics feel complete. In Across the Night, the only actual rhyme is tired perspired in the first verse. In the whole song. I'll talk more about Daniel's lyrics later on. I like Across the Night because I think it's, um, it alludes to complexity that doesn't exist. That's hard to do. It's hard to write a simple song that sounds complex, just as it's hard to write a complex song that sounds simple. What's going on musically in this song is, as Daniel said in that clip, deceptive because it implies complexity when it's actually very simple. 
This is exactly what I was talking about on the Neon Ballroom episode, where I said Daniel was using sonic trickery. I think that's the key to not just this song or Diorama, but going all the way back to Neon Ballroom. But his ability to make simple things sound complex had progressed. However, I think that's only true to a point. Musically, the chords are fairly straightforward, but there's a lot more movement in them compared to the songs on Neon Ballroom. Underneath that opening refrain, the chords shift between minor and major, adding and subtracting augmented and major seventh chords. All of these are simple in and of themselves, but there's just this sense of constant movement. It's a difference you get when writing on a piano. It's so much easier to move around and make strange chord combinations than it is on guitar. But the song isn't really recognizable with just the chords. You need Daniel's vocal melody on top, and it's one of his very strongest, a great way to open the album. As soon as I wrote it, I knew it had to be track one. It's the perfect entry into Diorama. I think it takes you to a different world and prepares you for what's to come. So let's talk instrumentation. First, the regular band members themselves. Even though this song was written on piano, when played live and on the album, it quite heavily features the acoustic guitar. Daniel's acoustic guitar in Across the Night, and tuner in The Brine for that matter, sounds like it's almost DI, direct input, because it has this slight distorted sound. It's not obvious, but if you pay attention to the track, you can hear it. In fact, if you listen to the demo version of Across the Night that appeared as a B-side on the Across the Night single, you can really hear how prominent that dirty acoustic guitar sound is. It's an interesting choice. As always, Ben and Chris's work on the basic track of Across the Night is the real secret to its success. They are the backbone and bring a cohesion to the composition that drives the song through all its gear shifts, keeping it firmly a Silverchair song. I mean, think about it. This is a Silverchair song that is not really a ballad, but it's basically only got an acoustic guitar, no heavy drop D riffing on this song, yet the rhythm section is that well-oiled machine we recognize so well. Chris and Ben set up the foundations of this song. Chris and Ben are actually very important to this album as a whole, because on many tracks, like this one, heavy guitar is a non-issue, and it needs Ben and Chris propelling the songs, sometimes as the only consistent thing in the song, when the vocals and piano or orchestra veer around. They are the backbone of a track like Across the Night or Tuner in the Brine, even though the rhythm is probably not what you think when you think of those songs. Listen to how strong this bass line is, really grounding the song. No, I don't have the stems for this, unfortunately. This is a random clip of Chris recording in the studio from the Across the Night documentary. And of course, this is all in addition to Paul Mack on piano, which is supplemented by a harpsichord, especially at the very start of the song. And it's all to support Daniel's vocals. As I said before, the song exists for its vocal melody. There are cool little musical things everywhere in this song, but boy does it all hang on that strong melody. There are no cool guitar riffs to hide behind. You either buy what Daniel's selling with this song, or you don't. It's like a fantasy piece. I was getting into musicals, a lot of musicals, and watching Judy Garland. and It make me sound real gay, but it's a fact. I always say, be true to yourself. I just wanted to write something larger than life and a little bit camp. Who could Daniel find to arrange instruments around this new Judy Garland-inspired music? 
enter one Van Dyke Parks. Yes, Across the Night is Silverchair's first foray into the wonderful world of Van Dyke Parks, the legendary and eccentric arranger, producer, musician, and lyricist, perhaps best known for being the mastermind behind the lyrics on the Beach Boys' Lost Smile album. Van Dyke Parks worked on three songs on Diorama, Across the Night, Tuna in the Brine, and Love Your Life. And just like the arrangers Daniel had worked with on Neon Ballroom, Van Dyke was able to take Daniel's ideas and flesh them out into an orchestral rainbow. Daniel John's meeting Van Dyke Parks is one of those serendipitous moments. The two just clicked, a match made in eccentric musician heaven. Um, I've, I've just worked in three songs, but, but uh, that's been a career. I mean, <laughs> I was a brunette when I started this project, okay? When I looked into this work, I wanted to weep. I thought that the vocalist was in such dead earnest. Simple as that. I liked that person. I wanted to know who that person was. Now, you might hear people call Diorama an album that sounds like a film score, but I think that's inaccurate and probably comes from people who just don't have the vocabulary to talk about any kind of orchestral music. I think Diorama is much closer to modern classical music. Van Dyke Park's arrangements do not have those big thematic leitmotifs that you associate with film scores. This is not underscoring, it's creating counterparts to supplement what's already there. Van Dyke is great at hearing parts in the music already written and drawing them out. His parts on Diorama always have a musical throughline in and of themselves. You never think, whoa, where did that part come from? His parts are always musically established. Listen to this comparison between the demo Van Dyke received and his final product. Listen out for how Van Dyke has used harmonic ideas directly from Daniel and Paul. The demo version. version. Van Dyke also adds parts that seem like they could never have not been there, like the glissando into the final So Let Us Be Married part. How was this part ever going to work without it? Again, if you compare the demo versions of the songs Van Dyke worked on, sometimes you can just hear what he was adding to, like how he takes what Paul Mack is doing in the piano and expands it, as in this example. The demo version? And Van Dyke's version. Uh. 
And sometimes he's come up with something completely new that has made itself indispensable once it's there. Aside from the work Van Dyke did on Diorama, he and Daniel stayed in touch, and Van Dyke was very complimentary of Daniel, even giving him a nickname, Young Modern. But we'll get to that in another episode. It is. It's this guy's awake. Okay, he's awake. He's uh, obviously he's very musical, and beyond all that, within that ability is an undefeated romantic. View. It was just like 10 minutes and the lyrics were done and I was really happy with them and I didn't want to change it because there's an honesty which comes with writing a song that quickly. A lot of the times the words come with the melody, like it's like someone's handing it to you and all you've got to do is be in the right place and just grab it. Based around a really cool chromatic riff and stabs of horns, piano and that reliable rhythm section, The Greatest View was the first thing Silverchair fans heard from Diorama, released 28th of January 2002, almost two months before the album came out. Before it came out as a physical release, there was an internet preview on chairpage.com you could stream, though I don't know if we were using the term stream back then. Supposedly it became the most streamed or downloaded song in Australian history to that point. I vividly remember logging on to hear that premiere. I was about to start my final year of high school, it was a warm day in Melbourne, and I loaded up chair page on my family's Dell Pentium to hear the next chapter in the Silverchair story. The first thing I noticed as this new Silverchair song played in Windows Media Player were the horns, arranged by old mate Larry Mulbrick. Now, having listened to Neon Borum so much, I was primed to be listening out for extra instruments, but I almost wonder if that preview was actually a different mix, or if by the time the song was properly released as a single, the more obvious rock guitar stood out more. But I definitely remember the horns. There are some really smart chord changes in this song. This time, rather than it being a simple song that sounds complicated, it's a song that sounds simple but is actually quite complex, at least in the variety of chords and chord changes that occur and alternate during the song. I remember reading an interview with Neil Finn from Crowded House where he talked about how he wrote songs, and one thing that he said that always stuck with me is that he always tried to have at least one kind of weird chord in there to keep the listener engaged too many normal chords, and it's easy to tire of a song quickly. On The Greatest View, Daniel's chord progressions seem like they were based on that idea. The verse progression goes A major to B7, a dominant chord, which has kind of an odd sound, and then back to A major, A minor, A major, E major. The chorus follows this idea as well. It goes from A major to A major 7th, then to a B minor 7th, then back to the more straightforward sounding D, D minor, and A again. I'm 
This switching back and forth between these different kind of chords keeps your ear interested in what's going on. My favorite part of this song is before the last chorus where it goes back to the finally I know part and it goes to that slightly different chord to the first two times you've heard it. Listen to the difference. First chorus. Final chorus. So what's happening is the first couple of times you hear that part, he's playing a D major to an A major. Please excuse my beginner level piano skills. But that last time, instead of going D major to A, he goes from D major to the F sharp minor seventh, which is almost the same chord as an A, but not quite. So it's the difference between this chord and this chord. And yes, he's singing the same note both times. That second chord always has a C sharp against it, which is a note that's in both chords. When they played this song live, Daniel really hit that difference and changed the note he was singing so you can really tell a lot more. It's really, really smart. Also, in that same section, Ben's little fills that play off Daniel's vocal part are so good. That's the sound of a band who just know each other so well and they can just stay in the pocket, adding to the song without overpowering it. And since I seem to keep mentioning whenever this band uses a tritone, I'll just point out that this bit in the main riff is a tritone. Anyway, it's interesting to think about how this song evolved musically, especially knowing that Atlantic wasn't stoked about it being a single. In a 2003 interview with Mix Online magazine, Daniel said of the song, quote, The way I had it arranged was quite different from how it turned out. I knew the record company would gravitate towards it for that first single, but I didn't want it to be generic. I wanted it to be challenging. But I think I had too much trust that the melody would catch people. David, Bottrell, came in and helped me arrange it in a way that was palatable, yet still different. Before, it wasn't palatable, but it was definitely different. End quote. Lyrically, the greatest view is, wow. Now, this song didn't make it to number one. In fact, it only reached number three on the Aussie singles charts. But it has to be some of the weirdest lyrics to ever hit the top five. You're the analyst, the fungus in my milk. Chain a waterfall to burnt and withered skin. Also, can we talk about the way Daniel sings burnt in this song? I actually don't know what to say about it other than the fact that it's the first time he had ever done anything like this on an album. It almost presages some of the wacky vocal stylings on Young Modern. Though lines like that do stand out, and boy did they at the time, thematically this song does sound like what Daniel said it was about, which is his loved ones. Jeff Apter quotes Daniel as saying the song was written for his parents, who had always, quote, watched over him when he was going through his mental health struggles. He has his family and his loved ones looking out for him, and therefore over him, and knowing they are there for him makes him have the greatest view. It's a much more optimistic lyric than Daniel had written, maybe ever, but at least since Findaway on Frogstomp. Greatest 
Without You was the first song written for this album and it was originally written around the time of Neon Ballroom but I came back to it later when I was writing Diorama and saw that it would really it could really fit on the record. It's got elements of what Silverchair were and what Silverchair have become all in one track. Without You is written in a version of open D-flat tuning, where all the strings are tuned to either D-flat or A-flat. Like the open chord tunings Daniel was using on Neon Ballroom, the tuning of Without You makes chord shapes easy, but it also acts almost like a drop D in that playing all the open strings creates a heavy power chord. I don't know if people appreciate how heavy the guitar tone is in this song, which really helps Daniel's vocal melody soar. It's such a killer melody line. There's that big whammy pedal in the main riff, which is actually just that open D flat chord that uses the whammy to imply movement, but really it's everything else that's moving around it, especially that super beautiful vocal melody. This is, I think, an example of what's called a pedal tone, where one instrument or part is consistent and all the others just move around it. On the Diorama Great Australian Albums doc, Matt Gizmo Lovell, one of the engineers who worked on this album, says they waited days for that specific whammy pedal because they just knew that's the sound they wanted. In that same documentary, Daniel says this song is particularly hard to sing because the melody is all over the place. But it's the interaction between that melody and the instruments around it that's the key to Without You. It's actually a mini masterpiece. Okay, let's talk about my favourite thing in the song. I love how the chorus vocal melody interacts with the moving chords underneath. It creates a really nice harmony, which at least seems like a level of sophistication higher even than what was on Neon Ballroom even though this song was supposedly written back in those days. So I do wonder if this chorus harmony wasn't there in that version. So the chords underneath Daniel's voice create a harmony that almost reminds me of like a pop punk harmony, like how Bad Religion might arrange it. The chords underneath the vocal melody in the chorus are a 1-5-4 progression, and they stay the same throughout that whole chorus, essentially D-flat to A-flat to G-flat back to A-flat. Again, please excuse my piano skills. melody on top however changes. The first part, the brighten my life part, has Daniel singing the third to the fifth to the fifth again to the corresponding chords underneath. So that is on the D flat chord he's singing the F and then the A flat chord he's singing the E flat. So 
then in the second half of the chorus, when it goes to, and I've waited, I've waited is an octave jump to the A flat, which is the fifth of the D flat chord instead of the third. Then the melody sings the sixth against the A flat and G flat chords at the line, for you, so I'll keep holding on. The whole thing lands back on a B flat minor chord at Without You, where Daniel sings the third and walks the melody down to the root. You, third, second, root. This part is also cool because it lands on the B flat minor, which is the relative minor key of D flat major, which is the key the song is in, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, because the chords in this song are played on a guitar that is tuned to just D flat and A flat, which is a fourth, adding those thirds, fifths, and sixths really makes the melody stand out because for the most part, the chords underneath are essentially acting as a power chord, but not really because it's playing root fourth octave, not root fifth octave, making it a sus four, blah, blah, blah. This is getting really confusing, isn't it? Let's just say it's really cool. I remember this song being particularly hard to sing, eh? It's like all over the shop. It really did my head in for ages. But everything's double tracked. Thanks to John Lennon. It's no wonder he hates doing that note live. It's a massive belted B-flat above the stave. The riff towards the end with the almost call and response guitar parts actually reminds me of Smashing Pumpkins, the way Billy Corgan and James Eha would play off each other on guitar. And I bet you think you've caught me in a trap because my contention is that Silverchair weren't a grunge band, but ha, we all know that Smashing Pumpkins weren't a grunge band either. They were from Chicago. There are so many little things in this song that add up to a massive overall impression. The bridge, the old incisions part, has this beautiful lap steel, or I think it's a lap steel, guitar part, and Rob Wolf's keyboards on this track, again, add another sonic texture. There's even tambourine in the percussion part, which you might not hear until I point it out. Have a listen. I feel like you don't even notice a lot of these elements, but if they weren't there, it would feel like something was missing. Speaking of Ben playing tambourine, I know I've mentioned Ben's reputation as the rock dog, but his musical palette was expanding a lot too. After all, this is a guy who got a James Brown tattoo not long after this album. I guess when we started, our, our influences were, were pretty limited. Like, you know, we hadn't been exposed to that much music and I guess it was just stuff that we'd heard from our parents or from friends. And um, so, you know, we didn't have, uh, 
didn't have much to draw on for as far as influences go. So um, I guess it just as, as time went along and, and we improved as players and, and we discovered more music and, and our, our taste broadened, then um, you know, I guess that's when we all started changing and, and your taste change and, and, and your playing changes. And I haven't even mentioned the lyrics for Without You yet. You brighten my life like a polystyrene hat has to be one of the weirdest lyrics in a hit song. The fact that a lot of people probably don't know that's what he's saying might help it go over better. When you're given a polystyrene hat at a children's birthday party, you're happy for like three seconds because you got this new hat and then you realise it's just polystyrene and put it back and it's really short term. (laughs) In that clip we just heard, Daniel explains what the line means. And what I get from that is, Daniel doesn't know what polystyrene is. Birthday party hats are made from cardboard, not polystyrene. Polystyrene is what they used to make coffee cups out of before bits of it started showing up in people's lungs. I think Daniel maybe meant to say cardboard hat, but it didn't sound good with that melody. Don't believe me? Try to Google polystyrene hat and see how many hits come up that aren't this song. That lyric aside, the rest of the lyrics on Without You do express the loneliness of being without the person you love, though the polystyrene hat line makes it sound like that love is fleeting. But this time around, the loneliness isn't expressed in an angry or depressed way as it would have been on Neon Ballroom. This time, the narrator is more philosophical about it. I'll keep holding on without you. Now, people talk a lot about Van Dyke Parks when it comes to Diorama, but there is another arranger who worked on this album, Larry Morbrek, who worked on Emotion Sickness, writing the piano part for David Helfgott, arranged extra instruments for four songs on Diorama, The Greatest View, World Upon Your Shoulders, My Favourite Thing, and After All These Years. It's always strange with um, Diorama, because obviously, due to the nature of Van Dyke Parks and everything, everyone always talks about his stuff which is incredible, but there's also some really lovely stuff by Larry Mahubrick, which um, I'm, I'm a real fan of his work as well, and he'd, he'd worked with guys like Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. Classic arrangements guy. He was the first string arrangement that I ever had conversations with, even when I was you know, 18 and 19 years old doing Neon Bora. I mean, he was just completely open-minded and willing to to try out my ideas without thinking I was just some strange little kid. Larry does some really tasteful, understated arranging work on World Upon Your Shoulders. As Daniel describes it, Larry and Van Dyke complemented the music they worked on in different ways, Van Dyke being more bombastic and Larry providing soundscapes. He was also a more solid, literal presence when Daniel brought him ideas rather than Van Dyke's more impressionistic takes. In World Upon Your Shoulders, I've always loved the harmony between the chords and the vocal melody in the verses. The chords match the rhythm of what Daniel's singing, but Daniel is singing the fifth of each of the chords. Over the bridges, in the world 
side to cross to. Live, he would sometimes sing the octave harmony, which is also on the album but not as prominent. It does make me wonder whether Daniel writes the melody first and then backwards engineers the chords, or if he has the chords first. It seems like it had to be melody first for this song. I also love that drum fill that Ben does to lead into the second chorus. Little changes all the time to augment what we've previously heard. That's really smart arranging by Ben. Musically, this song relies heavily on Daniel's beautiful 12-string Rickenbacker guitar. It's as bold a Jimmy Page reference as he ever did, including that great and tasteful guitar solo. As he says in the Great Australian Albums doc, he was feeling confident that day. said in the Neon Ballroom episode that Diorama is where Daniel started really arranging his vocal harmonies into layered, sophisticated choirs. Compare the relatively straightforward vocal treatment of, say, Anna's song to World Upon Your Shoulders, on which almost every second line has its own harmony, except at the climactic World That's Big and Violent part where his vocals are double-tracked in unison for a bigger sound, a trick that Daniel got from John Lennon. Big and violent, like a thing that's big and violent. I don't know if this line is stupid or brilliant, but I like the symmetry that it has, almost like a Zen Cohen. The repetition makes it sound important too. It must mean something. I'll talk about Daniel's use of repetition in his lyrics a bit later on. Let's talk about that big and violent middle section. To get to this section, the second chorus melody ends differently to the first chorus. Listen to the difference between the first chorus and the second chorus. First chorus... Second chorus. That second time, the melody ascends and lands on a B flat as the new section brings in an E flat C chord progression. This takes the song off to a new place. Daniel, as a songwriter, was really getting good at writing middle eights or mid sections of songs. So many bands would just go to a stock guitar solo or repeat a chorus, but Daniel worked out early on that having a really strong third part to a song outside of the verses and choruses makes a song stand out and takes the listener on a journey. On Diorama, this is dialed all the way up, as almost every single song takes you on a journey with multiple parts culminating into a cohesive whole. Now, I love World Upon Your Shoulders, but lyrically, it's a bit of a mixed metaphor, isn't it? Take the world upon your shoulders and burn. Burn how? 
This is the other side of Daniel's relatively newfound love of puns and metaphor in his lyrics. Sometimes they didn't quite work, but you know what? He bloody sells it. An example of a good lyric in this song with a fully thought out metaphor is the opening line. All the bridges in the world won't save you if there is no other side to cross to. Which is so good, I think it makes up for everything else. With One Way Mule and Lever, they were both the songs for people who have always been into that groove, heavier aspect of what we did. Sometimes I just want to just write rock songs and not worry about having to do anything particularly different and do anything that's going to stimulate me. I just want to play something which I would have loved when I was 12 years old and stood in front of the mirror with a tennis racket and played the riff and thought, this just can't get any better. The same feeling that I felt when I first heard Deep Purple or Black Sabbath. They're the kind of feelings that I want people to get when they hear songs like One Way Mule and Lever. Just things that make you want to jump around your room and be crazy and have fun. Diorama has this reputation as the orchestrated album, but it has some super heavy songs on it as well. One Way Mule and The Lever are among the heaviest songs they ever did. They're also the first time they tuned in Drop B. In fact, the only songs in Drop B in their whole catalogue, if I'm not mistaken. For the non-guitarists, Drop B is just like Drop D, except the lowest string is tuned down to B instead of a D. It's a much deeper sound, or technically a minor third deeper. That said, hearing Daniel talk about One Way Mule as being something for the old fans does make me think that the song was something of a half measure, which was my initial impression when I first heard the song. Supposedly the only song rescued from the abandoned first version of Diorama, One Way Mule at first sticks out on the album. Five songs in, you think you've got this album's number, then this drop B beast happens. With almost 20 years of hindsight, I've come to appreciate this song for how melodic it is, the vocals contrasting against the really heavy riffs. In fact, it's what I was praising the band for doing on Freak Show. I didn't make the connection at the time, but it's almost a Tool thing. Drop B riffs, melodic vocals, except Maynard from Tool rarely sounds as aggressive as Daniel does in the verses here. Even more than drop D, drop B tuning gives it the heaviness the song needs, but because the rest of the strings are still in standard tuning, the chorus can have that bright, almost softer, different kind of sound. mind in the chorus is an accidental natural C, meaning it's a note outside the key that the song is in. I feel like you can hear Daniel almost emphasize this note more if you're listening out for it. 
The same goes for the come in coming back to you. This actually happens all over the album, having those little notes that aren't in key to make things stand out. There's actually quite a bit going on to make this chorus stand out against the main heavy parts of the song. It has some subtle but present keyboards from Jim Magini, and that final chorus even includes some strings behind Daniel's voice, which aren't obvious on first listen. It's interesting to go back and listen to the demo version of One Way Mule, which pretty much keeps the heavy feeling all the way through. In fact, sonically, it hits harder than the diorama version. On the album, by contrast, those melodic choruses are brought more to the forefront, creating much more of a distinct shift than on the demo. Maybe this is something David Bottrell was skilled in from working with Tool and making those dynamic shifts feel bigger. The demo is still vocally melodic, but the album version is so much more dynamic. And let me just mention that the guitar solo in this song is pretty abstract. really cool. Again, strangely enough, it kind of reminds me of Smashing Pumpkins. Lyrically, One Way Mule has some very interesting imagery. Even just the title, One Way Mule, is quite evocative. On the Creation of Diorama documentary, we see the band demoing the song, and Daniel explains that One Way Mule refers to something that is just going forward, only following its line of sight. With this idea in mind, Lines like, when I've got time to kill, I'm coming back for you, and blistered skin in a cold-hearted pool seem sinister and dark, like a Terminator kind of thing. I think the second verse in particular is really strong, vivid lyric writing. Distant memories in a cage by my bed, viscid dreams stick to holes in my head, but a patient career of sleep in a Sunday dress rides my wake. Note that bed and head rhyming in this verse is the only time we get a real rhyme in this song. line about a career of sleep possibly refers to death and that once the narrator has found his prey he can die or lie easy also it doesn't sound like he says distant in distant memories it sounds closer to defanged or something it also doesn't sound like he was saying distant when he did the song live either Anyway, I have also always liked the line, I'll stake out just to find the knife in a dangerous heart. It 
it's an example of Daniel changing up the chorus on the last repetition to keep your ear interested. The juxtaposition of steak and knife does tickle me as well. Considering Daniel loves puns and playing on words, and we had lines like, pretend the steak's a cowboy, in point of view from Neon Ballroom, makes me think that this might have been intentional. Ever since we recorded Tuna in the Brine, I think we're, we're pretty much allowed to do whatever we want for the rest of our career because we've, we've achieved complete and utter strangeness. So, um, yeah, I, I, I recorded this one at home by myself just with drum machine, a bass guitar, an acoustic guitar and just laid up some vocals. And I called Paul and said, look, I've got this track. I, I'd really love you to play some piano on it. Open the doors to my trust Find love is true. With Tuna in the Brine, we've reached the midpoint of the album, and for some, we've also reached the apex of Daniel's songwriting. As Daniel says in that clip, with Tuna in the Brine, Superchair achieved maximum strangeness. But how beautiful that strangeness is. This is up there as one of their very best songs, and one of the most amazing songwriting achievements. It's almost like a magic trick. My favourite track's still probably Tuna and the Brine, just because probably emotionally the feeling that we had from day one of demoing it to playing in the studio and then hearing it with Van Dyke and meeting Van Dyke and watching it be recorded. And it's just, you know, there is no other piece of music like it that I know of. Like Across the Night, Tuna in the Brine is a simple song that sounds complex, at least at its base. The chords underpinning it are all fairly standard. It does get complicated, though. Tuna in the Brine starts out in the key of C major, then halfway through changes key to F major, then changes again to B flat major. The chord progression A flat major to C major recurs a lot in this song. If we take the key as C major, those chords are actually an augmented fifth apart, giving the song a strange underlying feeling. So like I was saying, the opening chords that go from a flat to C major under the verse recur throughout the song and are actually the same chords under that climactic ending. However, the melody keeps changing, making it seem like a completely new thing. By the end, we've been brought back to the start, but changed. The chords here are the same chords here. The song has taken you on a complete journey, so by the time you get back to those chords, it just feels completely different. Genius. Structurally, this song is pretty amazing too. This time it doesn't just sound complex, it is complex, at least in terms of pop song structure. By my count, we have at least eight distinct sections. Section one, we have the first verse, I fondle keys, keys and the first half of the second verse. Take everything that you're not. Take everything that you're not. Section two, we have the second part of the second verse, making it its own part. You'll come along for the sun with that descending piano line. This section never repeats though, and it only goes for four bars. So we could call it a continuation of the second verse since the underlying chords are the same. 
but for the sake of clarity, I think it acts as a separate part. This section leads directly into section three. Section three, the bridge or pre-chorus that leads into the refrain, the light in my darkest hour is fear, don't lose your heart, you'll need it, part. Section four, we have the refrain, take another pill, which occurs twice, each with different instrumentation behind it. Section five, the second continuation of the bridge, which happens instead of going to the chorus. This is the, to lose your heart, you'll have to lie amongst your lies part. The part that goes into 4-4. Four, four. Section six, we have the first part of the middle section, the painting a lie part. Section 7. We have the second part of the middle section, the closer now part. This includes the busking for change part because even though the melody changes, the part underneath is still the same and unlike section 2, the two parts seem more tied together. That said, I will note that in the sheet music for this part, the closer now part is called bridge 1 and the busking for change part is called bridge 2. So I can see an argument for them being considered separate especially since there is actually a key change in the middle of that section. Actually, screw it. Let's just call it a separate section. Section 8. Section 9. We have the climax. The To All The Animals Who part. So even though we do technically hear a hooky chorus twice, that is at least eight or nine distinct parts of a song with variations within. It's simple in one way and massively complex in another. So here's something awesome. Back in the day, Silverchair's then functioning website released some of the stems, that is the individual tracks, to this song for a competition where fans could do a remix of the song. So for this song only, we have the ability to delve even further into the musical makeup. But I think this is instructional for how the rest of the songs on Diorama are built. Lining up the individual tracks on top of one another, which is harder than it sounds because none of the stems are the same length for some reason, you can see how the instruments weave in and out of the song, the only real constant being Daniel's voice and the acoustic guitar, which on the final mix is not as prominent as the other instruments, particularly the orchestra. And again, like on Across the Night, that acoustic guitar has a really DI feel with even a bit of clipping in it. In fact, looking at the guitar track, it's the one track that looks brick-walled with the least dynamic range. 
Listening to the stems, it's amazing how it all comes together because the vocal track is really the only single track where listening to it by itself gives you the full song. Every other instrument weaves in and out throughout the song. Every section needs the vocals to make it feel right. The orchestra is playing off the vocals and the piano, the piano is playing off the vocals and so on. So it's really a masterpiece that shows the genius of Daniel to know that it would all fit together. The unsung star of Tuna and the Brine though is Paul Max Piano. As an experiment, try to focus on what Paul's playing and you can hear much of what Van Dyke Parks ended up doing with his orchestrations. For example, I've rendered out a section of the song using just Daniel's vocals and Paul's piano. Listen. My listen to Van Dyke Park's orchestration. In a major example, Paul's counter melody in the Closer Now part became a major theme in Van Dyke's arrangement. Here's Paul talking about that. He sort of had the chords um, and sort of would sing, uh, but I want a kind of Russian choir sort of vibe up the top and be so like... You know, that sort of thing. So I'd sort of try and make up a part that you know, described what he was trying to get out of his head. Evan Van Dyke took the, the the real thematic middle eight section and, and Van Dyke was like, well, I'm, I'm, we're not going to top that line. We'll just make the stringers do that as well. And everything just branched off from there. Van Dyke took Paul's Russian choir piano line and built the arrangement around that. Listen with just Daniel's vocals and piano. Close. Then with Van Dyke's arrangement. Then the finished product. final big bit and you've got this chord like which is you know like fucking who knows what which brings you out to the end you know and then the big triumphant outro and it's like you so you're just doing this on a guitar and a piano it's like yeah yeah keep going i'm almost with you i almost get it 
Despite Paul maybe not getting it right away, his work becomes integral to the song. My favourite part of what Van Dyke does in this song is actually that middle section, the painting a lie part, where the band basically drops out completely and it's just Daniel's voice and Van Dyke's orchestra. I have always loved the way Van Dyke has the string section respond to Daniel's voice in this part. Just before that middle section too, you have Van Dyke's horns creating what Daniel calls a Return of the Jedi-inspired part on the You'll Have to Take. Another thing you get from listening to these isolated tracks, if you didn't realize already, is how strong Daniel's voice is, especially when it comes to harmonizing with himself. And to lose your heart, you have to lie amongst the lies, like tuna in the brine. And to lose your heart, and to by the way, during that part, the time signature briefly switches to 4-4 when the rest of the song is in 6-8, which was apparently Paul Mack's idea. Daniel was like, you're crazy for this one, Paul. So Daniel's harmonies are great, but he also uses his voice to create some eerie sounds on the song as well. For one, we get the temper temper part. I think this is where that Kate Bush influence from Nick Lornay's musical education of Daniel really shows itself. On the diorama Great Australian Albums doc, Daniel also talks about using overlaid vocals to create a bee-like sound, which creates a really unsettling sound. Vocal things here. We tried to sound like bees. This is swarm of bees. I think it was about 12 tracks of the same note, just going ah, and then get, you get one or two which waver off off the note. So you go ah, and you get this strange discordant thing that happens. I've isolated the vocal tracks for it here. For my pregnant pause, I'm changing He did this B part live a lot when he played this song. He loved it. And while I've got the opportunity, let's just listen to how locked in Chris and Ben are here. 
They might be an underrated rhythm section because everything builds on top of them, not just on this song, but on this whole album. I'll also just point out that even though we do get two choruses, each time the actual phrase tuna in the brine is sung, it has a different melody. In fact, the phrase tuna in the brine appears four times in the song, and each time the notes are different. Listen to the differences across those four times. The first time, the first chorus, it descends down to a G. The second time, it goes up and down, landing on a C. The third time, it goes up and down again, but lands on an A. And the final time at the very end, it's almost the same notes as that third time, but the lead-in note is different, and the chu in tuna is an E-flat instead of an E. In addition, the final time it's sung is over an F minor, whereas every other time we've heard it, it's been against a major chord. Even when you think you've got this song's number, it changes on you. The song's about exposing yourself and allowing yourself to shine, so I was trying to think of a suitable metaphor and I was just sitting back thinking of what's really shiny and what is really well lubricated and looks really nice and packaged. Then I remembered opening a tuna can when I was little and being fascinated by how shiny the tuna were. From the rainbow on the album cover to the themes of opening up to a wider emotional range, this song is almost the thesis statement of the album. It's my time to shine like a tuna in the brine. Overall, as you just heard in that interview clip, the song thematically reflects the idea of becoming open to the world after coming off antidepressants that restrict your emotional input. Lyrically, this is one of the weirder songs on the album, but it all comes from a very genuine place. The metaphor is meant to be about coming out of your shell, shining like tuna in brine. A strange lyric, perhaps for a then vegan, especially since by the time tuna is in brine in a can, it's churned up and dead. Sometimes Daniel's metaphors weren't thoroughly thought through. I do like that the word brine is on the lowest note in the phrase. It's an example of something called text painting, which is where you write a melody that reflects the lyrical theme of the song. So for example, having the word high on a high note. Stephen Sondheim does this a lot. So in this song, brine is the lowest note. Brine means the sea, sea is deep, lowest note, etc. Of course, in the context of this song, he's talking about Brian and a can, but it's a cool idea. Anyway, if you thought that was a long bow to draw, just wait. Remember how on the Neon Ballroom episode, I talked about how much Daniel loves playing on words? Check it out. On Tuna and the Brian, we get pregnant paws, P-A-W-S, reinforcing the sort of animal theme of the song with tuna, animals sipping sweat, etc. And in terms of alliteration, we get feeble fables. We also get temper with, tampered with evidence.
Also, and this might be stretching it, but stay with me, we get some assonance, which is basically alliteration, but repeating the vowel sounds instead of the consonants. In the main refrain, listen to the I vowels. Take another pill, tell another lie. Lie amongst your lies like tuna in the brine. You can hear it, right? Let me stretch this out even further. In the closer now part, listen to the E vowels. Closer now than we ever have been. We are closer now than we ever should be. Closer now than we've ever been before. Been before is also alliteration. Closer to everything. All those E vowels. Also, as I mentioned earlier, diorama doesn't have all that many rhymes in the lyrics. And in Tuna and the Brine, the first rhymes only occur at the very end. So first you've got busking for change and changing everything. Feeble fables aren't changing many things, which is really just rhyming a word with itself. So it doesn't really count. But then we get the thesis statement. It's my time to shine like a tuna in the brine. And that's the only true rhyme in the song, which is what makes that section so powerful. The fact that it also includes the title of the song really adds to that power. I always think that choosing the title of the song and how it relates to when or even if it appears in the song is a really underrated part of songwriting. <sighs> okay, I'm done. Although I'm really serious about that song and that's the song I'm most proud of on the record, there's also an element of humour in that song which I haven't really explored before. There are times where I know it's ridiculous but I wanted to do it because it appealed to me. It's more an introduction to what I want to be doing in 10 years time. And that's the episode for today. I think we could all use a break after that, right? In the next episode, we'll talk about the rest of the songs on Diorama, the reception to it, and some other discussions around the album as a whole. As always, thank you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. All Silverchair music is owned by Murma and Eleven Music Publishers. A lot of the extra content from this episode comes from the Robert Hambling film Across the Night, The Creation of Diorama, and the SBS production Great Australian Albums Diorama, directed by Larry Meltzer. Furthermore, I encourage people to buy these films if you can find them. I would have included links to where these films are available, but surprise, surprise, these are more Silverchair-related things that seem to have been lost in the streaming age. That said, I believe I am using these resources as well as all music in compliance with copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. Once again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends or your enemies if they like Silverchair. Rate, review, subscribe, follow me on social, email me. You know how by now. See you next time. Yeah.